the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Dan Ehrman, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, our friend Aubrey Sampson is not in today, uh, but hopefully we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, we are thrilled, Dan, to be joined in studio by the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy at World Relief, also part of the Evangelical Immigration Table, somebody we're only used to seeing on my computer screen. Every time we talk to you, it's on that now back in studio with us. That is Matt Sorens. Matt, how are you doing today, bud? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Uh, describe for people who, who maybe haven't heard you in the past, uh, what is it that you do at World Relief? Tell us. I know there's a, that's a huge umbrella. Lots under that. But, but what kind of things are you doing? Yeah, so I'm... Um, my job is basically to help us live out our mission, which is empowering churches to serve the most vulnerable. And in the U.S. context, we're really focused particularly on refugees and other immigrants. Um, one thing I think we've realized is we can't just presume that, that that's an obvious thing that people in churches think of as a good thing. Mm-hmm. So my job is sort of the why of, of refugee resettlement and immigrant ministry. How uh, do we provide a theological and, and missiological foundation for why we, as, as a church, would care for refugees and care for immigrants? And then the other part of my job is focused on advocacy. So we do a lot of work. 99% of our work is kind of on the ground, ministering to people directly, walking alongside them. But sometimes we run into public policies that actually hinder people from flourishing in our mm. country. And so my job is to help encourage churches to think in distinctly Christian ways about how we think about those refugee and immigration policy issues as well. Mm. One of the things I see with immigration is it's being hyper and I've heard you talk about these issues in a way that really addresses people from the left and the right. For me as a Christian, like refugees and immigration is an issue that cuts on a diagonal as a Christian. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fit cleanly left and right. Mm-hmm. Talk us through a little of how you engage with that idea in the church. Yeah, I mean, we, what we want to do is be faithful to what the Bible says, not necessarily what the Republicans or the Democrats say. So. Biblically, we have, you know, on the one hand, we have this clear principle that people are made in the image of God, that human beings, regardless of what country they're from, have value, and we want to affirm the dignity that God has placed in each person. Um, we have these, you know, commands to love our neighbor, and mm-hmm. read Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. It's pretty clear that that could include a vulnerable traveler of a different ethnicity or a different religious tradition, because that's the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, but we also have passages like in Romans chapter 13, or I mean, elsewhere in the New Testament, where God it makes pretty clear that God has established government and mm-hmm. government has an, a role uh, that gives us a respect for the rule of law. Um, frankly, lots of the immigrants whom I interact with, the rule of law mostly functioning in, functioning in the United States is part of what has drawn them here. Mm-hmm. And that isn't always the case in the places they've come from. Um, certainly, also, we also want to be you know, be fair to people, uh, you know, both to U.S. citizens and to immigrants uh, And when you get to some of the economic considerations around immigration. So sometimes, you know, there's some of these biblical principles that I think Democrats like to point to these verses and there's other per- verses that Republicans like to vote to to point to. But our view is we've got to bring those pieces together. And we actually don't think that's that hard to do. We can both honor the law and be compassionate towards people. We can say that we want families to be together. We think God has designed families to be together. Um, while also affirming that we should, you know, keep out anyone seeking to do harm to the country. Yeah. That's an appropriate function of government. And we can we can bring those things together. Yeah, and depending on what 
news channel you watch or whatever else, you get a different picture. So from your perspective, I know a week or two or three weeks ago, you were down in El Paso, down at the border. So what are we seeing? What is actually going on uh, at the border and, and in our country right now? Yeah, you know, the border, you know, it's it's definitely a, a mess right now and that there are large numbers of people arriving. Now, I wouldn't characterize it as uh, as like a security threat because the large majority of people who are arriving are being apprehended by the U.S. government. Mm. Um, in fact, that's partially because we have, a, you know, an excellent Border Patrol that works really hard. It's also because most of the people arriving are looking for the Border Patrol. Like, they're not trying to escape from the Border Patrol to sneak into the country. They're looking to seek asylum, which is on a part of U.S. law where you have the right to seek asylum if you can demonstrate that you have a credible fear of persecution for particular reasons. Um, now, again, there are a, a smaller share of people who don't get, who are trying to evade Border mm-hmm. Patrol, and that's that's a problem. We've been really clear that we don't think that's acceptable. But the large majority are people, it's actually families. I mean, there's some single adults, but a lot of kids with a mother or father or both who have fled some sort of hardship. Mm. And now, some of them are going to have really strong asylum claims. If you fled Venezuela and you were politically active, and that's why the, the corrupt Maduro regime in Venezuela has you know, beat you up or threatened to beat you up, that's uh, a credible fear of persecution on account of your political opinion. Others are frankly fleeing poverty, um, which is understandable. If I couldn't feed my kids, I would consider leaving as well. But it doesn't necessarily qualify you for asylum under the terms of U.S. law. And then to throw a further complication into all that, that's what U.S. immigration law says right now. And this could change even, you know, in the next few days. But we're not actually mostly using U.S. immigration law at the border. We're using public health laws that sort of trump what the immigration laws say. Uh, That's been the case since March of 2020, of course, Mm. under covid uh, the Supreme Court is even as we speak, you know, they will be considering in these coming days whether it's still appropriate to be using a public health rule to basically ignore our asylum laws. Mm. And even that we are the, the U.S. government can only do to the extent that Mexico will let them, because basically for public health reasons, we just turn people who are not Mexican back to Mexico. Well, Mexico has a legal obligation to take back Mexicans. They don't have an obligation to take back Guatemalans or Venezuelans or Cubans. And at, at the moment, Me- Mexico has basically said, we'll take back Mexicans, Guatemalans, Salvadorans, Hondurans, for the most part. Mm. We won't take back uh, most South Americans. We won't take back Cubans, Nicaraguans, certain other nationalities. And so in some ways, this, under this public health regime, we have outsourced to Mexico to decide who gets asylum in the United States, or at least who gets to seek asylum. And then yeah. still the U.S. government will make that determination if you qualify under the law. And even that will probably take four and a half years on average. Man. That's a... That's a long wait. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, it, when you look at kind of the messiness of all of these issues, um, I look at, you know, as a church, how does the church engage with mm-hmm. this? And, you know, you, you mentioned to me earlier, you spent time with the church both in Mexico and in the U.S. at the border. Talk about that dynamic. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think some of my heroes are the churches on both sides of the border. Um, I mean, World Relief actually works with a, a church partner, and this is in, in Tijuana, a different part of the Mexican border, but we, there's similar churches in, in Juarez and elsewhere. And we work with this little Baptist church, and we help provide some financial support for them, basically running you know, electricity and water, because they've got dozens of families sleeping in their church building. Uh, this pastor literally, like at a certain point, decided, you know, I don't need an office so that we could construct three extra bunk beds in what used to be his office. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, that uh, the, that particular pastor is an example of like the selfless Christ-like love that you see there. Um, you know, when the U.S. said we can't do any more asylum claims because there's a public health crisis in 2020, he didn't send people out to the streets. And his, his shelter got pretty crowded, and he passed away from COVID in December of 2020. Wow. And his wife is still running that shelter. Um, wow. And um, 
you know, it's it's a lot of Central American families, many of whom are fellow Christians. So they're mm. you know they already had a church there, but their church has actually grown because of the people who are living in the church building. You know, sleeping in bunk beds around mats on the floor. So there's that dynamic on the Mexican side of the border. Yeah. On the U.S. side of the border, uh, depending on who's being allowed through. So when I was there in El Paso a few weeks ago, the Central Americans, for the most part, were not being allowed through. But the Cubans and Nicaraguans, who are in the southern part of Central America, and it's kind of different political dynamics, um, they were largely being allowed through or at least processed. And what happens is they go to a church-based shelter on the U.S. side of the border, usually for a night. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're not where they're living. Uh, and volunteers or staff of those churches are basically figuring out, hey, do you know someone in the United States? Okay, you got a relative in Chicago? Great. We'll help you call your cousin in Chicago. They'll buy you a plane ticket or a bus ticket, and you go live with them. That's where your court date's going to be because you'll have given that information to the Border Patrol. And again, I think it's really important to understand the Border Patrol is coordinating really closely with these churches. They're the mm. ones dropping them off at the churches. This isn't anything you know, nefarious or illegal. It's the church is stepping up and saying, Hey, we want to make sure you are not sleeping on the streets while you're in our community and that you get to where you need to go so that you can show up for your court date, which Mm. again might be a long time into the future, man. That's so helpful, man. Uh, If you've been around the show for the last couple of weeks, you know that Aubrey and I've been working our way through the 12 days of prayer and action for a Christmas miracle for immigrants. Matt wrote that and he produced that. So we're after the break, we're going to talk a little bit about that, but where can people find that if they want to see the 12 days of prayer and action for a Christmas miracle for immigrants? Yeah. So it's at evangelical immigration table.com. And if you click on take action and then look for our prayer partner emails. That was sort of our December prayer push. Yeah, it's been really good for us. Kind of eye-opening to go, oh, okay, there are practical things that we can be doing. Matt's going to stay with us as we continue to ask him, what can the church be doing right now? What should the church be doing right now around this issue of immigration? You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Dan and I are thrilled to be joined again uh, by Matt Sorens. Matt is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy at World Relief, also the co-author of a great book called Inalienable. I'd encourage you to go pick that up if you missed the first part of our interview, uh, go to get our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast, and you can catch up on that. Uh, so, Matt, let, let's talk about World Relief for a second. A lot of people, especially with churches, know of World Relief. What is it that World Relief does, and how can local churches here partner with World Relief? Yeah, World Relief's whole mission is focused on empowering local churches to serve the vulnerable. So, um, we work with like dozens, if not hundreds, of churches here in Chicagoland and then in all other parts of the United States as well. Um, to welcome refugees and other immigrants, asylum seekers, um, to make sure that they get on their feet as they land in a new place. Um, you know, we have lots of direct services that we provide. So we have staff who are authorized to do legal services, and we have ESL teachers and, you know, caseworkers. But a lot of the work we do is actually helping local church-based volunteers to, to plug in. And what they can do that our staff with, you know, can't fully do uh, at least not on the scale that we would need to, is just be friends. Hmm. You know, sit and have tea with a newly arrived family, help them practice a new language. And you know, that's one of the things we've heard from newly, arrived fam- newly arriving families over the years is one of the things I needed most when I got here was someone who was from this country, who knew their way around, who understood the culture and the language, and who would be patient with me and hmm. work through some probably some cultural misunderstandings and um, certainly some language barriers in most cases. Um, and, it, you know, we see that as an incredible opportunity for the church, to, it, you know, very consistent with our mission. It's part of loving our neighbors. Uh, often it's coming alongside people who are brothers and sisters in Christ who were mm-hmm. persecuted in some cases for their faith. Uh, other cases, it's people who don't yet know Jesus, but we have the opportunity to be that fragrant aroma of Christ to people mm-hmm. who 
probably would never have encountered a Christian had they stayed in their country of origin, but then encounter uh, that witness in the Christians who they meet here mm. when we love our neighbors well. And yeah. we want to really call the church to that love of neighbor that, that is, you know, the great part of the great commandment that Jesus gives us. Mm-hmm. I used to do a lot of work with international students here in the Chicago area. And one of the, like the number one desire of a typical international student is to experience an American home mm-hmm. and the family dynamic and the family meal and the house and in those things. And I imagine that's true for someone just entering into the U S of saying, what is, what is it to be an American? Yeah. And you know, what is this experience? How do you enter into this? And in some ways for us as, as Americans, that dialogue is as foreign to us as it is to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, as you see people entering into this, what is that journey? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it, it ends up being this often this beautiful sort of reciprocal relationship. And that's our goal. Like there's a lot of needs as a newly arrived family first arrives. Um, but you know, six months, a year after arrival, we don't want a family, you know, needing support from from the church based team that's helping them. We call that a good neighbor team, but we do want them to be friends. Mm. We want them to be in relationship, and, th- and again, that mutually, because there's things that that newly arrived family has to learn about American culture and learn the language. But we've also found that there's a lot that Americans can learn from people who have gone through some really unique, often really horrific experiences that were what made them a refugee in the first place, fleeing some sort of persecution um, or, you know, immigrants who fled really harsh conditions of poverty and have learned to be incredibly resilient. We think that there's a, you know, there's a lot that the American church needs to learn from them as well. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, my whole, my life personally has just been so enriched by some of the, the friendships that I've been able to form uh, through World Relief and just in the community where I live in Aurora, um, which is a mostly immigrant community. Um, you know, I think that's been, uh, that's been our story at World Relief for well, 40, more, 40 plus years now. And, um, and you see that even generationally where like some of our best volunteers are the children of people who were resettled as refugees 30 mm-hmm. years ago and who, you know, understand what the family is going through. Yeah. Mac, so immigration is one of the hot, hottest button political issues there is in our country. Like, how do you differentiate or can you between theological and political? How do you help people process immigration as a theological issue and as a political issue? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think the theological issues are, I don't know if I'd say easier, but they're more they're more clear. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, how do you treat the guy who lives next to you who's from a different country who showed up? You're going to have to really stretch anything in the Bible to come up with, well, just be mean to them anymore. <laughs> like, this, this is <laughs> not, not my neighbor. Yeah, yeah, they're not your neighbor. Um, now, the, the policy questions are more complicated. You're not mm-hmm. going to find somewhere hidden in the minor profits the number of refugees that the United States should bring to the United States in a year, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's going to be a prudential judgment. Um, and we'd be really careful at World Relief never to say, like, the Bible says Joe Biden must bring more refugees or Donald Trump must bring more refugees. What we would say is we think that there's some biblical principles that can inform how we think about those policy questions, mm. which I think is a bias towards more generosity, a bias towards protecting human life because mm. we believe it's made in the image of God, a, a bias towards opening up those opportunities for ministry for the church in the United States, which when the government in its you know function says no more refugees can come to this country, that's you know, that basically limits how churches can minister as well. Wasn't and, that the name of your first book? Welcome the stranger. Welcome the stranger like, is, yeah. is the book that we wrote. And you know, that would be draw that right out of Matthew 25. Yeah. And again, that's a command I think for, for individuals to think about how do we, you know, when Jesus says I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Um, but it's also worth noting that in Matthew 25, Jesus says he will gather the nations hmm. for judgment. So it, it is in some ways I think has, you know, there's a role where, not just individuals, but as a, as a group of people, 
um, we have a role to think of how do we receive those who have who have arrived as strangers. And that doesn't mean the United States government has to take everybody. That's never been our position. Um, but we do think that, frankly, our country has been blessed by immigration for most of our history and is continuing to be blessed when we have the eyes to see that. Both, mm. uh, the, it's true for the church. It's true for our economy. Um, you know, again, because we think people are made in the image of God, we would be interested in welcoming refugees, even if it wasn't in our economic interest. But it is actually precisely because there are people made in the image of a creator God with this capacity and potential to create and to contribute that we find that refugees and other immigrants contribute in really remarkable ways as well. So, you know, you've navigated this now talking about theology and politics and leaning toward the theological construct, uh, but there is a political dynamic Mm -hmm. to this conversation. Uh, Politics is really draining in America. (laughs) It's been a rough decade, right? Uh, How do you remain focused and re-energized in the midst of kind of, you know, you, you need to be somewhat callous without being entirely mm-hmm. callous. Yeah. No, I, you know, I, just this week, like, I mean, you mentioned these 12 days of prayer for a Christmas miracle for immigrants. Part of that has been praying for Congress in their last days in this Congress to do something, um, particularly on the border, which is a mess, and for dreamers, this category of immigrants who were brought as, as kids to the United States, who Congress has been kind of kicking that back and forth for literally 20 years, what to do. And there's been administrative programs. Some of those are being challenged in the court, the DACA program. And that's, it's personal to me. I mean, I go to church with people, you know, my kid's Sunday school teacher. This is whether she can keep her job or not. Hmm. You know, I have colleagues who this is like whether they can keep their jobs and that means provide for their families or not. Because these are people who came as kids, but now they're in their 30s. Like yeah. they've got kids of their own. And when that, and at this point, I'm still praying for that miracle, but it looks pretty well dead in the Congress, um, which is super frustrating. It's also super frustrating that they're not, you know, everybody likes to complain about the border, but they had a, a bipartisan framework um you know, two weeks ago, while I was at the border, it came out from Senator Tillis in North Carolina, Senator Cinema from Arizona, that would have put probably $40 billion into Border Patrol and other border, you know, spendings, asylum adjudication, and a path to citizenship for Dreamers. And they, you know, and there's blame to go in both parties, but they couldn't get that done. They couldn't mm. agree upon it. And that is, it's discouraging. I mean, for me, it's more so, I think, for the people whose lives are literally on the line. I, I do go back to my theology and to the reminder that, you know, my friend's value is in their identity in Christ, yeah. not in whether the U.S. government says you get to stay here or not. That doesn't say, you know, I don't want to totally spiritualize thing where it doesn't matter if they get to provide for their family. That matters. Um, but the more, the ultimate identity is in Christ. And I, you know, I want to keep that as the focus and um, trust that God can work even through dysfunctional political systems, yeah. that, you know, that can be frustrating. Again, uh, Matthew Sorens with World Relief 12 days of prayer and action for a Christmas miracle for immigrants. Remind people two things. Where can they connect with you personally, social media, whatever else, but also where can they find the 12 days of prayer? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter, uh, Matthew Sorens, uh, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-S-O-E-R-E-N-S, uh, sort of on Instagram, but I'm not very good at that. <laughs> He's a great um, Twitter follow. It's um, true. And then... Th- so the 12 Days of Prayer uh, is at the Evangelical Immigration Table website. Again, you have to click on Take Action, and then there's Prayer Partners. And you can sign up to get our monthly prayer emails. But a lot of this was drawn from the email we sent this month, really giving people 12 ways 
that they can be praying and acting as well uh, for immigrants who are vulnerable right now. That's awesome. Again, Matthew Sorens, U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy at World Relief by the Evangelical Immigration Table. Also pick up his book. He's the co-author of a book called Inalienable. Uh, Matt's great to see you, man. Have a Merry Christmas. You as well. Merry Christmas. Thanks. You're listening to The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.